chapter 5. James 5. It's hard to believe it. We are at the end of the book of James. James 5. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 20. James 5, 12 through 20. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is God's word in James 5, 12 and following. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, this ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth now and the meditation of our hearts together be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I want to begin by sharing with you uh, a letter I read this week. And I'm really not sure I've ever read a letter quite like this letter. Uh, this letter is dated the 6th of November, 1807. The writer says, You are not an evil human. You are not without intellect and education. You have everything that could make you a credit to human society. Moreover, I am acquainted with your heart and know that few are better but you are nevertheless irritating and unbearable. <laughs> and I consider it most difficult to live with you. Some of you are thinking, honey, why did you show the pastor the letter I wrote you? <laughs> that was just between us. The writer goes on. All of your good qualities become obscured by your super cleverness and are made useless to the world merely because of your rage at wanting to know everything better than others of wanting to improve and master what you cannot command. With this, you embitter the people around you since no one wants to be improved or enlightened in such a forceful way, least of all by such an insignificant individual as you still are. No one can tolerate being reproved by you, who also still show so many weaknesses yourself, least of all in your adverse manner, which in oracular tones proclaims this and so-and-so without ever supposing an objection." If you were less like you, you would only be ridiculous. But thus as you are, you are highly annoying. 
That was Johanna Schopenhauer to her son, the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer. I couldn't help but think that Mama Schopenhauer sounded a little, a little bit like James at some point, calling out the bitter jealousy, the selfish ambition in her son. When you can see how it might be difficult to live with him if he's as bad as she describes, although I think Arthur might say, yeah, you and me both, right? After a letter like that. It's difficult to live together in the church. Maybe thus as you are, you are highly annoying, describes that person you try to weave through the rows to avoid after the service. Maybe it describes someone you struggle to love or someone you struggle to forgive. We get wrapped up in ourselves, and when we do, we've set pure and undefiled religion that we've been looking at for weeks. We set it in the corner, and we've let worldly wisdom stain us with its perspectives and values. When we're caught up in this way of thinking, all of our good qualities become useless to the world, as Johanna Schopenhauer said. It becomes useless to the world. This, this true, others-focused Christianity goes out the window. What I believe James is focusing on here at the end of his letter, in this passage we're looking at today, uh, he's focusing on a community life, uh, the life of those who walk the humble faith way, the others-oriented way of heaven's wisdom, a way of life that's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, resulting in this harvest of righteousness planted by peacemakers. Doesn't that sound like a good way to live together in the church? That sounds great. Is it easy? It sure isn't. And that's what this letter is leaving us with at the end. I think that we should just consider today what the Spirit might do in a church that lives like this, that's seeking this kind of righteous life together, uh, enabled by the humble faith that only the Spirit can give. What would this look like in the church? So we're going to look at how humble faith edifies others. I think we can see three characteristics of this kind of faith that edifies others. First, humble faith edifies others through truthful conversation. Secondly, humble faith edifies others through support in life's ups and downs. And finally, humble faith edifies others through loving the wayward. So first characteristic, humble faith edifies others through truthful conversation. Uh, you may have noticed I read James 4.12 again uh, even though we looked at it a bit last week. Last week I talked about how people are undecided really whether it's part of that passage or part of this passage. But I think we can spend a little bit more time on this verse because it's relevant to how James closes his letter. It's relevant to our Christian life together. Uh, we'll just look briefly at this first point, but look with me again at James 5 verse 12 in your Bibles. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. As James so often does, he's just quoting his older brother and Lord when he says this. Uh, James, or Jesus said, speaking to the corrupt religious leaders of Israel, Matthew 23, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, 
For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see what they were doing is they were finding a way to cross their fingers when they made promises and say, oh, I didn't swear by the temple. I just swore by the gold that's in the temple. You fools, Jesus says. Back in Matthew 5, speaking on the same topic, Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So we mentioned last week that this is probably understood in part as uh, this warning against imposing your will uh, over God's will and invoking his name to your purposes rather than submitting to his purposes in your life, even through difficult circumstances. Uh, But this verse also has a lot to teach us about edifying conversation in the church community. It's a characteristic of humble faith that edifies fellow believers, truthfulness in conversation, truthful conversation. It has to be characterized, or the church must be characterized by this truthfulness as we talk to one another, honesty and trust. Uh, It's never been my habit, though maybe it has been a habit of yours at some time to say, I swear to God when you're saying something with emphasis. But that doesn't give emphasis to what you're saying if you think that's what was happening. You have to listen to what the German pastor scholar Helmut Fielke, or however you pronounce this, um, he said this, I thought it was really good. He said, whenever I utter the formula, I swear by God, I am really saying, now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and a responsibility that ordinarily overruns my speech. And just because they are counting on my lying, I have to bring these big guns of oath and words of honor because people are expecting me to lie from the start. See, that's what's really happening here. When you could say yes, or you could say no, and hopefully you're the kind of person that someone would believe when you say so. Yes, I will should be something your brothers and sisters can take to the bank. No, I won't should be something that's trustworthy too because God hates lying. He detests lying and dishonesty. Think about it. Not only is it at odds with his holy character as revealed in the law, thou shalt not bear false witness. It also runs against what the gospel is all about, this reconciliation that God is making happen through the gospel, reconciling us to God and to one another through the good news of Jesus. Lying and dishonesty sets fire. It sets a match and burns down the building that God is creating through his gospel. So we must have trustworthy conversation in the church. That's a humble faith that edifies. It edifies through trustworthy conversation. Dishonesty is not others-oriented Christianity. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's the first characteristic of this humble faith that edifies others. It edifies others through truthful conversation. Secondly, humble faith that edifies others, uh, it does so through support in life's ups and downs. Uh, Look with me again at verse 13, and we'll continue on. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. The Christian community, this community uh, produced by humble faith, uh, humble faith in Jesus, it should be marked by unity, a unity of spirit, 
of togetherness, support in life's ups and downs. We heard Psalm 133 read this morning, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. I don't know for certain, but I think James might have this passage in mind uh, with what he says in a moment about uh, the anointing with oil. Here in this context, it's describing unity and love in the fellowship. We'll talk more about that in a minute. In verse 13, uh, James seems to be encouraging individuals, not necessarily the whole church, but individuals uh, to personally pray in their suffering and to sing praise in their joy. But there is a collective call to this in the New Testament. We are called to this. I'm breaking my rule now to just let James speak and not Paul through James, but I think this is relevant. Paul says in Romans 12, 9 and following, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's a great picture of church life that Paul is describing. He goes on, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And here it is. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I actually think that's, culturally speaking, to help the person. We don't have to get into that today. Don't be overcome by evil, he concludes, but overcome evil with good. What a picture of Christian community. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Support through the ups and downs. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. We're called to this unity and this harmony in the church such that when James says, is anyone suffering, let him pray, we should just be running to that brother and sister and say, wait for me, I'm praying with you. No one prays alone here. That's what we ought to say when a child is sick or a job is on the line or a relationship is torn and all this has brought our brothers and sisters in Christ to tears, we don't let them pray alone. We go to them and we pray with them. and We go to the throne of grace together. When James says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. We ought to picture Liz running over here to the piano and Leah maybe breaking out his guitar, Joshua breaking out the fiddle, and we sing together. There are no soloists in the church. If someone is joyful, we join with them, rejoicing because they're rejoicing. We should be too united to allow this to happen uh, on someone's own. We do it together. Then James speaks about praying for the sick. Look at verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Let's talk about this one for just a little bit. Um, I think it's abundantly appropriate and needed for the elders to be at hand when someone calls for prayer, to come and pray over them in person when possible. I once read a story about uh, Calvin's Geneva. Uh, and there was this minister who was deposed during a plague. He was removed as a pastor. Why? Because he was going to visit people who were sick with the plague in the hospital, but he was only standing at their window and praying with them through the window. They said, you're gone. You're not a pastor anymore. I think that's a little harsh personally, uh, but it highlights this priority of being there with those who are sick, particularly this pastoral role of praying with those who are sick. Why the oil? What's with the oil? Should we still anoint the sick with oil? Uh, Some churches do it. Some church traditions do it. Uh, Here's what I think about it. In my opinion, the oil was very tied to Jewish culture. It was a very enculturated symbol. And James is writing, of course, to these early believers uh, who were mainly Jewish at this time in the early church. Today, it probably doesn't have the same significance as it once did. It would seem from what I've studied that the anointing with oil, if you think about how Aaron was consecrated as a priest with oil, it, it symbolized this divine grace. It was, a, it was a symbol of that that was um, very recognizable to those who had grown up in Judaism. We read of the apostles in Mark 6.13, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So, Despite how some churches and how some traditions have carried on this use and even made it a sacrament, which I don't think is accurate, uh, I don't think that this was instituted by Jesus. I don't think that it's wrong to do so, but I don't think it's necessarily required to do so because it is a very um, culturally specific thing. Uh, That's my take on it. But again, as I said, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong uh, to use, but I think it really had its time and place in the culture that James is writing to. Uh, William Barner speaks on how this care through prayer for those who are sick reflects the heart of Christ. And he says, the church has always cared for her sick. Ministries to hospitals and nursing homes are not the most glorious ministries, but they are near the heart of Jesus. Because Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And what does Jesus say? The king will answer him. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. I'm spending a lot of time here on this section because I think it's been uh, very inappropriately handled um, in a way that has really caused a lot of heartbreak because of false hope held out to those who are suffering in some of the most intense moments of their lives. Uh, We have to be clear that James 5, 14 and 15 doesn't support uh, the supposed healing ministries and healing campaigns that you might see on TV or on Facebook, social media, these big massive events of healing where everyone goes to the stage and there's, you've seen it, right? We know we have a picture of that. 
But everything indicates here that this was something private, not some giant show on a stage. This was intimate. The elders going to the bedside of someone who was suffering. It was caring and personal. It could be that this person would be healed through their prayers. Even they could be forgiven should their illness be something that has been brought on them by sin. Maybe it's part of God's fatherly displeasure and discipline in their lives. It's not assumed that they have sinned, but they will be forgiven if they had sinned, Jesus says, or James says. God works through prayer in ways that we can describe as miraculous, but that's different than manipulating uh, the the hopes of people, uh, these fraudulent ministries that really are in it for the cash. It's really, it's, it's an evil thing to twist God's word in this way. It's apparent in scripture that healing doesn't always happen. Sometimes a thorn is left in Paul's side. Uh, sometimes a leper is cleansed, but not every leper is cleansed. Not every lame man is told to get up and walk. Some of the apostles' own co-workers succumb to illness and death. But we're assured of this. Look with me again. James 5. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's not a superhero prophet. He's a man, just like you. He has a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So the purpose is not to presume on God's will in our prayers for healing, but to go to God in prayer to go to God in our need and to believe that he does hear and answer prayer. So what do you do when you're sick? You call a doctor, of course, like I told the kids. I'm sure they would love to get out the box again and help you. But we go to God. We remember him in all things. Uh, Thomas Manton helpfully observed that sickness is God's messenger to call us to meet with him. And he reminds us, Manton does, that this was Asa's sin in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 16.12 Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but only sought help from the physicians. So call a doctor, but call on Jesus too. That's the point. Mateer is helpful here. He says, James insisted that we should live deliberately, referring all of life's experiences to the God from whom they come. For praise in a time of well-being and prayer in a time of difficulty are alike acknowledgments that one sovereign hand is over all. Even when we go to the doctor then, our eyes are to the Lord. He alone can heal. Every good gift is from above. When the aspirin works, it is the Lord who made it work. When the surgeon sets the broken limb and the bone knits, it is the Lord who made it knit. I think that's helpful. That's helpful. So humble faith edifies others through truthful conversation. Secondly, humble faith edifies others through support in life's ups and downs. Finally, One more way that humble faith edifies others. Humble faith edifies others through loving the wayward. Loving the wayward. This is a powerful way for James to end his letter. Have you noticed that reading James? It's sort of a mic drop at the end of the letter. It seems somewhat abrupt. To this community fighting for prominence and position and a pulpit to make their own opinion known to everyone, James leaves us instead with a mission, something to pursue in Christian community. We're to take the gospel of God's grace to the humble and take it to those who are maybe by persecution that they've faced or maybe because they've let their minds and hearts be captured by worldly wisdom. They're wayward. They've left the fellowship. They've left the fellowship. They've stopped showing the fruit of humble faith. 
They have stopped caring, but we can't stop caring for them. We have to be concerned for them. We're to love them. We're to seek their restoration. A community of humble faith doesn't say good riddance. A community of humble faith goes looking for the lost sheep, pursuing the wayward. My brothers, James says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. How can we read these words and not remember the parable Jesus told? This vivid parable of his love to the wayward that we're called to. If by humble faith we're clinging to the one who came to seek and save us when we were lost. Matthew 18. What do you think, Jesus says? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went away. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I don't think it's any accident that this parable is followed by the steps outlined in Matthew 18 for discipline, for resolving the fractures caused by sin in the church. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He goes on to describe that where two or three are gathered in the name of Christ, he is there with them. There's this pursuit and this going after. It's not an instant thing to bring the hammer down and to kick someone out and say, good riddance, they're gone. Furthermore, can it be any accident that those instructions are followed by Peter's question? When do I say enough is enough? I'm not forgiving this person one more time. Ever had that question? Living by humble faith in the Christian community? Peter came up and said to him, as Peter often does, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. On the heels of this, Matthew 18 goes on with a parable of a man forgiven a great debt, an insurmountable debt by the king. Do you remember what that man does? He goes and he grabs a servant who owes him a insignificant sum by comparison and he chokes him and throws him in debtor's prison until he can repay him and that man is cast out by the king that parable really comes into its own as we see it through the blood of the cross that was shed on calvary to rescue us and to ransom us for our from our great insurmountable debt we can't make someone listen but if we make someone come back james says this is worth celebrating because you've saved a soul from death by humble faith, we love the wayward. We must because Jesus is our good shepherd who went after the lost sheep. The early Eastern Church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, prayed, O Christ, good shepherd, who gave your life for your flock, you went looking for the lost lamb over mountain and hill and found it. After finding it, you carried it on those same shoulders that were to bear the wood of the cross and taking it along with you, you brought it back to the life of heaven. James is calling us to do what Jesus did for us. 
good to remember what John the Baptist said. I am not the Christ. You, friend, are not the Christ. But you can take Christ to that wayward person, taking his grace to him, showing him his love, calling them back to the fold. So wrapping up here, if we're called to go after the wanderer, let's call that the extreme. Surely we're called to forgive our brother or sister in the church who has wronged us, who has sinned against us, perhaps in a lesser way than abandoning the truth of Christianity. And if we're called to go after that person and pursue a life of humble faith that confesses our sins to one another, maybe even resulting in our healing, uh, surely this would be a good thing to do if we were to called to go to pursue the one who is, is wayward, edifying others through truthful conversation, edifying others with support through life's ups or downs, edifying others through loving the wayward person in our day-to-day waywardness and in the extreme, in our catastrophic wanderings from the faith. What would that look like here at Heritage Presbyterian Church? If we were truthful in conversation, if we supported one another through life's ups and downs, and if we were loving to the wayward, in all the small ways we're wayward against one another, inconsistent, hurting one another, and in the big things too. A church that's living by humble faith isn't content with the salvation of just those who stick around. My brothers, James says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins because Jesus covers those sins. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are not sufficient for these things. We are called to humble faith, and our only hope is that you command what you will, and you give what you command. We want to be a church characterized by the humble faith that clings to Jesus, and because it clings to Jesus, it edifies and reconciles with and restores those whom you, through the gospel of your Son, are reconciling to you and to one another. Give us the humility to receive your grace, and give us your spirit to exercise that faith in a way that builds up the body of Christ here in this place. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.